I think I maybe figured it out. All right, we are recording and I'm letting her in. Here we go. Hi, Amy. Hello, how are you? Good, I'm sorry that we're late. Oh, that's okay. Hi, Amy. <laughs> Hello, nice to it's meet so you. It's so nice to meet you. Thanks for meeting, meeting with us on a Saturday. Sure. I mean, you know, all the days are the same now. So. <laughs> Sadly, that's true. My, my hope is that'll change. <laughs> Mine too. So, Amy, why don't you start off by just telling us a little bit about yourself? <clears throat> um, sure. I am an associate professor of elementary education at Michigan State University. And before that, I was an elementary school teacher. Very nice. And um, what attracted my attention to you is you wrote um, an article about math and joy in the primary math classroom. Will you talk a little bit about that work? Um, sure. Um, so I've been doing this work now for 30 years um, and um, have visited a lot of classrooms um, looking at the mathematics teaching, you know, my student teachers and mentor teachers and, the, you know, classrooms are brought in for, for professional development. And of course, like we have all these pedagogies that we teach people and we're looking for those, you know, the right kind of questioning and how they engage kids and whether they're using high cognitive demand problems or materials. Um, but really what I found was um, I knew pretty quickly whether I was going to see an engaging math lesson or not. And it was really about reading joy um, in kids' faces and bodies. If they were happy and engaged as part of that lesson, then almost certainly what was going on was good. Um, and it started to make me think that maybe it would all be a little bit simpler if we just um, sort of tried to focus on promoting that feeling of joy. Um, and in saying that, I try and be really intentional to say, I'm using joy and not fun, right? Um, so this isn't about like using M&Ms for math or teddy bear picnics or whatever. Um, and I was really influenced by a book about joy by the Dalai Lama and um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, where they really talk about joy as being like an ethical practice and um, more connected to the world and in service of others. And so like, that's sort of the spirit that I'm looking for us to recognize and build in children and also to build in teachers. Yeah, I love that because I do think that it, you know, it, even though you have this curriculum focus on math, that joy piece is just integral to learning in general, right? That, that you have to be open to that experience yeah. And and the joy makes it so that you are fully engaged and committed and integrated into that learning. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, you say fully engaged because there's work in psychology looking at flow, um, which is this idea that when you're really engaged in a task, you sort of lose track of time and you don't realize that you're doing it. And I think that that is a big part of joy, that experience of being so immersed in something that you don't even know time is going by. And I think you're absolutely right that it is not just about math and it's not just about early childhood. You know, when I advise doctoral students, they come in lit up about some topic and I say 
this is the one, like you found yeah. the work that you want to do. Um, and it's not about, oh, you asked a new question or these are interesting methods. Like yeah. all of them might be true, but really it's about this visceral response in the person. Yeah. So how would you differentiate um, joy from fun then? So you talked a little bit about M&Ms and, you know, teddy bear picnic. So what, what do teachers do that kind of infuses joy that you found in the mathematics classroom or just general classroom? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing I might like make um, an analogy between, because in some ways, like it's not a checklist, right? Like if you do this, then you will have joy. I mean, that's like right. the absolute antithesis of joy. Um, but um, like we can think of fun, like M&M's is maybe a really good example as sort of the kind of food that maybe is attractive initially and it tastes really good, but then like afterwards you sort of regret eating it and you feel bad and it didn't really fuel your body. Um, whereas like maybe if like your grandmother makes this homemade chocolate cake um, for your birthday and you eat it and it still like is a treat, um, but you don't ever regret like having engaged with that, like that eating your grandmother's yeah. cake like brought you more fully into being a human being. Um, and so I sort of think it's like that. Um, you know, one thing I don't like seeing in math classrooms is um, like I'll observe a lesson and afterwards teachers will say something like, oh, they had so much fun. They didn't even realize they were doing math. And I would say, but no, wait, like we want them to know that we're doing math. We're not trying to like coat medicine and peanut butter, right? So for me, like that's the difference between fun and joy. Like fun is that peanut butter coating that we try and put on something unpleasant to try and trick people to engaging with it. Um, and yeah, sometimes it works, right? Like this is why people, you know, put peanut butter on their medicine for dogs. <laughs> um, but joy is, the actual practice of it is so engaging that I don't need to be bribed into doing it. Um, and I think that this can happen in lots of different ways. So first of all, curiosity is a huge part of it. Um, when kids or adults get to work on something where they truly don't know like how it is going to work out or what the answer is going to be, like that's deeply engaging. Um, also like, having challenges that are like at just the right level of challenge can be joyful. And you know, it's, I just heard um, during this quarantine, jigsaw puzzle sales are up, I don't know, like 350% or something. And like jigsaw puzzles can be an intensely frustrating experience, right? Yeah. Like and my children are working on one now, the whole bottom third of the puzzle is like different shades of black. Um, but like <laughs> that experience that you get when you find that right piece and you put it in, like it's like a shot yeah. of dopamine right there, right? right. Um, and the reason you get that is because of like this work that you're putting into it, into it, into it. And there are those moments that are hard and that are not necessarily pleasurable. And I think that like, that's another difference with joy is like with fun, everything is smooth and easy, but like actually like, my kids who are now 18 and 10 would not enjoy doing one of those 20 piece, you know, giant jigsaw puzzles, like the strawberry shortcake one they did when they were little. It wouldn't be a challenge. Like even though they would complete the task and do well, that wouldn't be a joyful experience. The, the bits that are like hard that you have to work through where you feel like you accomplished something, all of that contributes to the joy. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so 
like as I think about mathematics classrooms, some of that is thinking about the difference between like a problem that really asks kids to bring everything they have to bear on it and like a set of rote tasks, right? Like, so if I'm doing, I don't know, 20 edition problems, maybe it takes me a long time, but it's not demanding that much from me. And so I'm gonna feel relief when I finish, but I'm not gonna feel joy. Whereas if I'm working on a problem where I can't quite see my way in, and then I get there, like that flash of pleasure is something else. Um, and then other like sort of easy, like cheats for joy that I think about are things like choice, you know, um, all human beings are different. Um, actually like doing jigsaw puzzles does not bring me joy. Uh, <laughs> but thinking about, um, you know, can, if I'm trying to teach a particular mathematics concept, can I give kids different opportunities for engaging it? You know, can they choose where they physically want to work in the room? Can they choose whether they want to work with a partner or whether they want to work alone? Um, can they choose whether they want to like represent it in an arts-based way or um, play a game? Like games are another one of those things where some kids find the competitive nature of games inherently joyful and they love it. And other kids find it very stressful and they turn off. And both those things are true. Um, so like thinking about how do we create a space where kids who feed off games can do that and kids who um, engage in different ways can do something else. Um, I think, I mean, one of my hopes is that when we come back to regular schooling, we'll really think about like what we learned in this quarantine time and um, the ways that we've had to be flexible and we've had to make individual adjustments. Um, and we've had to recognize that kids have whole selves and whole bodies and things going on in their families. Like, yeah, all of that's true now and it's really present, but all of that's true all the time. It's just mm -hmm. we pretend like we don't have to acknowledge that. And my hope is when we come back, um, we'll be better prepared to acknowledge kids' whole selves. Yeah. So Amy, I, I work at an elementary school as a as an administrator and we are moving this next year into trying to step away from the, this is how you do this problem. You know, our, you know, role is not the question why just reverse and multiply. I mean, we just, yeah. we give kids these like rules that we want them to memorize or the last year, the, the teachers wanted to spend a tremendous amount of time on like memorizing the facts. And I'm not necessarily against memorizing the facts, although I'd love for you to address that as well. <laughs> My, my point is we are looking at ways for teachers to give themselves permission, if you will, because they feel a lot of pressure to get everything done, right? Yeah. By the time we get sure. to the end of the year. So we're, we're trying to find ways to give teachers permission to have that exploration and that, and that like investigation and, and almost like a, a, you know, how to build a better teacher. They compared, you know, different uh, country strategies on teaching math. And, and I believe it was in, uh, in South Korea where they, they focused on what were some of the perfect open-ended questions that they could provide for kids that would lead them to better understanding. So they started instead of the I do, you know, they started, they started with the you do without Hallelujah. any directions, right? So, so help me as a, as a school leader, what, what advice do you have to help our teachers who think they just have to give the rules? Yeah. And they mean well. Don't get me wrong. They mean well. Oh, for doing sure. Such, no, such I know. hard work. 
Um, I mean, first of all, how wonderful that they have an administrator who's encouraging them to take risks, right? Because um, so many teachers are afraid of what will happen when their administrator walks in the door. Um, and actually, you saying that reminds me, um, the second school I taught in, really early, my principal came into my room and she said, I'm never going to ask you to explain why the kids are talking. If I come in here and it's silent, I'm going to want to know why. And like... Mm -hmm that permission to like not have to worry about if she showed up like my kids might not be like yeah. sitting in their seats and completely on task like it let me try things that like i might have been afraid to try otherwise so i think some of it is that some of it is actually adjusting your theory of learning and it is hard for teachers many not all but many elementary teachers around mathematics because Many elementary teachers did not have positive experiences of mathematics when they were young. And so um, they might be able to bring this really playful spirit to their literacy instruction. And then in math, that might be an extra bonus challenge. So I think sometimes like professional development where teachers get to play with math and discover things and see that it can be fun um, can be a way in. Um, I, you know, one way in for me, because actually I, I did not grow up with a positive relationship with math, was um, cognitively guided instruction. Um, and I did this PD when I was a pretty young teacher. And so much of it was about having kids talk to each other and listening to them as a teacher. And like that was stuff as an early childhood person, I knew how to do and I liked and it was fun. Yeah. And all of a sudden, like math was this thing that had these parts in it that I really enjoyed, you know, like, you mean I can teach math and like just have kids talk? Like, that seemed like a miracle yeah. to me. Um, and then I think maybe reading some research because, um, yes, 100% children need to become fluent um, adders and multipliers. But we know that emphasizing memorization actually doesn't get that done. Like we can just look at the history of education. If time tests were what caused people to know basic facts, US kids would know more basic facts than any <laughs> other people in the world, right? Like we have tried that strategy, like empirically, a we lot. can say a lot. Yeah, we have really <laughs> mastered that one. <laughs> and we have looked at it and, you know, on a wide scale, it doesn't work. And we're actually getting to a point where we know why it doesn't work. Um, you know, now that, you know, people can do all this like neuroscience, you can actually see that for a lot of kids, their anxiety centers get triggered in a time test and anxiety centers actively interfere with the parts of your brain that learn mathematics. And so like, it's not only is it like not doing any good, but it's like actually making it impossible for you to learn the thing that you're trying to teach. Right. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so I think starting to think about like help teachers see that saying we don't want to do time tests or we don't want to do flashcards is not the same as saying we don't want kids to be fluent, right? That right. Um, we can look at like what are activities we can do around composing and decomposing and using tense frames and all those things to help kids develop that fluency, but to not do it in such a high stakes manner. And then also, I think, I mean, some of this I really do think, especially if you're talking about people with good intentions, is a knowledge problem. There's this false idea of what you have to learn before the next thing, right? Like, so I had a student teacher just did this paper for me, where one of the things he said was, well, we have to drill these addition facts because we can't start fractions before that. 
And I said, fractions doesn't have anything to do with addition, you know, I mean, yeah. you can add fractions, but like the conceptual understanding of what is a fourth and what is a half, there is no reason we have to know our addition facts before we can learn this yeah. other thing. Um, and so recognizing that um, we can like come in on some of these big conceptual ideas and that children's fluency will continue to grow as we engage in these other ideas, that it's not a matter of, well, we have to make sure they're fluent before we can do this next more challenging, more interesting um, thing where maybe kids will be more successful. You know, lots of little kids um, bring in big strengths around spatial reasoning and are really successful in geometry, but they don't get to geometry until the last three weeks of the year because, yeah. you know, we've been doing all this um, fluency right. work. And so they start to think of themselves as bad at math. Whereas if we threw geometry in there in October and said, this is math and kids felt successful at it, all of a sudden they would have these new mathematical identities that they could bring into number work when they came back again. Um, so I don't know, I think lots of ways in, but I think teachers have to find a way of engaging with mathematics that they genuinely enjoy, that they feel yeah. joy in. Um, and that, and I think there are lots of ways to do that, but if they don't feel that thing, it's really hard to have. Yeah. So, um, Amy, you mentioned cognitively guided instruction. So that has come up quite a bit in my, so I'm an instructional coach and I'm trying to find new ways of supporting teachers. Um, I don't feel like, so it feels like this has been around for a while and I don't feel like it's hit our schools quite the way that it ought to have. So will you talk a little bit about what it is? Yeah, um, and you're right. This has been, I mean, you know, I was a teacher in the early 1990s and it was around then, it was not brand new. Um, so yeah, it, it's been around. Um, and it's a really, in some ways, basic idea that um, children learn operations and counting through problem solving and that we can systematically think about both the kinds of problems kids encounter and also the way they come to solve them and that we can understand the way they come to solve them as a developmental trajectory that we're moving kids along and that by engaging with each other and each other's ideas kids can move along that developmental trajectory so if we take a really basic like addition word problem you know someone has so many books they get some more what's the total some kids are going to solve that by direct modeling they're going to draw a picture and they're going to draw a picture of like literally books you know not even dots and then they're going to count them all up um, which is great like that's a way of solving the problem but it's not an efficient way of solving the problem. And so other kids are going to maybe start by modeling with slashes and then they're going to count all and they're gonna count on. Um, and then some kids are gonna do derived facts, you know, where they say, well, if it's five and six, I know five and five is 10 plus one more is 11. And some kids are gonna say, I know five and six is 11 because I've memorized that. And that kids in a classroom are almost certainly going to be working across all of those strategies and what the sort of format of cognitively guided instruction does is like slows it down so instead of doing these multiple problems maybe we do one problem or we do two problems but we take the time to share solutions and um, teachers become really intentional about which solutions to share so it's not about the point isn't, and I think sometimes it gets taken up this way of, look at all the different ways you can do this problem. And like we come up with 
like infinity ways to do it. And some of them are just patently ridiculous and no one would ever do in the real world. Um, the goal is to move kids toward more efficient strategies. And so as a teacher, if I see a strategy, you know, if I see counting on pop up for the first time in my first grade room, that's one where I know I want to get that in front of kids today because some of my kids won't be ready for it, but some of my kids will. And so like, as we go over time, um, more and more kids move along. And I think here's what the magic I think of CGI is you can understand it really in a relatively short professional development section, you know, a couple weeks of PD, but it continues to work after that because you get smarter by listening to kids. So like, I mean, again, I've been doing this a really long time, but still, if I go out in classrooms and do a model lesson, I will see a strategy that I have not seen before. And I have to think that through and how that fits into the other things I know. And so the actual teaching of it is professional development, which again is joyful, right? Because I'm learning instead of doing this like predictable thing that happens the same way all the time, I can be surprised. Um, and so like, as we think about co being coaches or administrators, thinking about what are pedagogies that we can share with teachers um, that will like allow them to learn as they use them and not ones where like all of the intellectual authority is somewhere else. Like, I don't know if y'all are old enough to like remember success for all, but like when it came out, you know, like it was this reading program and you like, had this timer and you were reading aloud and the bell went off and you were supposed to stop reading wherever you were in the sentence. And like, as a teacher, it just felt entirely discombobulating, you know, like someone was in charge of this like situation that wasn't you and wasn't even in the room. Like, I'm never gonna get smarter about reading instruction if that's how I'm doing it, right? I'm only gonna learn to sort of mimic this thing. Um, whereas, in like a reading instruction where I have to listen to kids and how are they talking about books and what are they struggling with and figuring out what to do next, then I get smarter as a teacher. Um, I think that's one of the really great things about education is like pedagogies that tend to be good for kids also tend to be good for teachers. Yeah, yeah. in fact, Amy, I was just going through that in my mind that we're not talking just about primary grades, we're talking about all grades, we're talking yeah. about teachers, we're even talking about administrators, instructional coaches, and all of us, that when we find ourselves in this place where we're feeling joyful and engaged because of the mystery of the work and the curiosity that's kind of mixed in there. And, and I wanted to emphasize too, so much about what you've been talking about has has involved kind of a social aspect, right? You know, that we love the connecting with others and not that it's required for joy because I think we can also have joy when we're on our own. But I think that there's an element that when we are learning in that kind of social space, that it really feeds uh, that, that curiosity and that engagement and that joy and that aha kinds of connections that we start making, so. Love, yeah. love those examples. No, I think 100%. You know, my um, daughter's fifth grade team just Friday set up a Zoom call and the whole point was just to let the kids talk to each other. So they did yeah. like breakout rooms and just let them have conversations. And like, I think, yes, it took us a while to like get to this point to recognize we needed to be yeah. doing that. But that recognition that, yeah, we are social beings. And I think we're really learning that right now. And um, we have to have opportunities for engaging with others. Yeah. Yeah, very good. So you you have a novel, a young adult <laughs> novel, coming out this January, right? Yes. Will um, you talk a little bit about that? How did that yeah, come I, to you? I, I, yeah, in your spare time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, thinking about joy, 
um, I was going through a sort of down period in my life and was really thinking about what made me happy. And one of the things that makes me happy is young adult fiction. Um, and so I thought, well, I think I might try writing this. Um, and so it's called The Quantum Weirdness of the Almost Kiss. It's a romantic comedy and it's coming out in January. And um, the heroine- Can you say the name again? Cause I'm yeah, writing it down. It's The Quantum Weirdness of the Almost Kiss. Um, I love it. So as you might guess from the title, <laughs> the heroine <laughs> is very mathy. Um, and so like one of the things I wanted to do with it was like create this book that is like frothy and fizzy and fun, um, but also like really pretty mathy. Um, and hopefully like give uh, young people reading now this sense of like math as being something that is pleasurable and even romantic and interesting. Um, and it's like been a real joy actually to go through this um, process. That yeah. is so great. Um, I, I know we're kind of running low on time, but I have, I have two questions. One, if you haven't already, I would love for you to invent a way to measure joy <laughs> in the classroom. No, if, I mean, there's some truth there that like, I don't know sometimes if teachers themselves who might be lacking joy know what to look for and is it like a rubric, but what kind of behaviors, what things are happening? So as we come into your room, if your kids are experiencing joy, what would we see? So if we could even all partner in on that, Amy, but I, <laughs> I, mean, I, I would, think I want to like, maybe push against a little the idea of measuring, right? That like, once we turn this, like, I mean, I can't imagine like going and being like, well, you scored a 4.7 on Joy. So sure. I think yeah. let's get to work. You have to have a 5, you right? You at 5.8 level. You're not joyful <laughs> enough. Next yeah. year. Like that does not seem to me a good way of promoting. I think like teachers and kids are plenty measured enough. Um, sure. And in fact, one thing I would encourage schools to reflect on is this year, I don't know what it's like where you are, but at Michigan, we canceled our standardized tests for the year. Yeah. And you know what? I think teachers are going to come into the classroom just fine in the fall and be able to teach without that data. I don't think sure. we need it. And sure. so maybe this is a time for us to ask, like, do any of us need that data? Like, is it giving us something um, that is worth the angst that it's causing? Sure. I would love to see us ask that question. Um, in terms of recognizing joy, I think that we have to, again, trust our human selves and our bodies. Like we are raised from babies to read the emotions in other people. Like this is yeah. something human beings, most of them are pretty good at. Um, and so like, I think if we ask teachers to sort of reflect on how they feel yeah. like um, at different moments of the day, you know, how are you feeling when, as you finish your literacy instruction, how are you feeling as kids come in from lunch? Um, they can identify for themselves these moments. And I think little kids can do this too. And they need maybe some more practice, but that's okay because that's part of what we're supposed to teach them um, in primary school is yeah. how to understand and process their emotions. Um, and so I think it is just a matter of um, making it a less hidden part of the curriculum. So something that we talk out loud, like if you think about like Jane Nelson's work around morning meetings and circle time, like to think at the end of the day, like what's a time today that you felt really happy? Yeah. What's a time today that you felt really sad? Yeah. Um, and as we reflect on that as individuals and as a group, we can move toward this 
I hope more joyful place. Yeah. And, and point, point uh, well made. I, I think for myself, what I was striving for was even a way for me, again, I like the word reflection for me to be able to, uh, as a teacher, or maybe even as a leader looking at my own people, right, that I'm working mm -hmm. with, kind of stepping back and allowing me to like, do I see people smiling? Do I see people interacting? Do I see people with their shoulders down? Do I see people, those are some of the physical signs that I yeah. might be able to see and observe as I recognize, you know, do I have a group that's kind of coming in all clenched up and uh, stressed and maybe not in that space where they're having as much joy yeah. because joy is such a driver for, yeah, for no, so much is. of the work. And I think like the thing you're talking about now is really lovely, like being intentional about it, assigning language to it, letting it take up space so people know it's a priority, um, yeah. all those things. But um, it can't be something that we want you now to perform, right? Sure. Like, because that's, that's not going to do the thing. Um, yeah. It's not that we want you all to act joyful. <laughs> right. We want right. you to be joyful. Yeah. And that means doing the work, right? Yeah. And I think um, in schools, we're going to run up against some conditions that are material um, and are interfering with joy. And then we need to stop and think about that. You know, teachers cannot go to the bathroom between nine o'clock and 12 o'clock, it might interfere with their ability to feel joy. And <laughs> like, we might have to think about, well, so then yeah. how does that mean we structure things differently so people can take care of their bodies? Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think that this is a big and wide reaching problem that goes beyond pedagogy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Uh, my last question was, we like to know from people, if you could enter into a time machine and go back and talk to your younger self or kind of have like a do-over from the beginning, what advice would you give your younger self? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think as I think about my younger self teaching, it would have been to trust myself and to trust my kids more. You know, I started teaching at the, the beginning of the accountability movement. And I think that um, I let that get to me um, in ways that definitely weren't healthy for me. And in ways, um, I, you know, I think I tried to mitigate for my kids, but I wish that I would have done more. I think I let too much of that stress filter through to them. Um, and I think that I didn't have the confidence in myself then to like sort of stand against the tide. Um, and that's what I would want to do differently. And kudos to you for having that space where you can push back and say, hey, we're not going to just go ahead and start measuring things and pushing <laughs> back mm -hmm. and saying, no, let's let's step back. So I think that I'm older brought now, you, so <laughs> it's brought you exactly to the place that you need to be to help all those who are coming behind you and entering yeah. into the profession. So thank you. Thank you. It's a terrific article in The Mathematics Teacher about joy. And um, we look forward to your young adult novel that comes out in January. Really looking yes. forward, really excited about that. And um, thank you so much for your time today, Amy. It was really, oh, it was a really enlightening conversation. So I'm excited yeah. to take this into our practice. Thank you fun. so much. We really appreciate spending time with you today. Thank yeah. you. Have, Have a, a great day. Bye-bye. Take care.